This is Donald Dennis, and before we get into this episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast, I wanted to let you know that we are coming up on ShrushCon, which is March 22nd through 24th, here in Polly's Island, South Carolina, just south of Myrtle Beach, north of Charleston. It's going to be an exciting, exciting time. The big deal is, though, that on the Friday, the 22nd, from 10 to 1, we're going to be covering story games. Now, that's going to include... Of course, role-playing games, Untold Adventures Awaits from the fine folks over at Hub Games, and many, many other games, be it some board games, some role-playing games, maybe even a little bit of LARP if we can find someone to help us with that. Um, So, come, play, learn about how to use games in your library, or if you have something that you want to share, because I'm sure that a bunch of you out there have knowledge that I do not, I'm sure that we would love to have you here and showing off and sharing your knowledge. So, once again, that's ShushCon, March 24th through 25th in Polly's Island, South Carolina. And so, yeah, come on in, join us, tell us all about what you're doing with story games in libraries. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. This is Kathleen Mercury, and I am really, really excited about today's episode because this is so incredibly different and high level than what certainly I do with middle school. I'm really excited to introduce Lieutenant Colonel James Pigeonfielder, currently an associate professor of political science at the U.S. Air Force Academy, an active duty U.S. Air Force officer. And what he does is all about games in the military in terms of Everything from designing major military exercises to having his students um, to teaching with war games, having his students design um, war game modules. So, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, I'm so. Should we just call you Pigeon? That's fine. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay. So, Pigeon, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh no worries. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. So you teach at the U.S. Air Force Academy. How did you? end up, how did your career evolve to where putting you there? And then also following that or included in that, how do you use games as part of what you do at the U.S. Air Force Academy? Right. Well, the first part of the question, now there's a tale to be told. (laughs) I actually started enlisted in the United States Army. And if somebody had told me on day one of Army basic training that I would end my career in the Air Force as lieutenant colonel teaching the Air Force Academy, I would have told them they were crazy. (laughs) Um, so it actually started in the Army, uh, coming up for the senior ranks and making it to sergeant, where you know, a, a part of an NCO's job is to you know, train their subordinates. And so we'd have weekly training events um, where I'd have to design some sort of activity where I'd say we're going to you know, learn a new topic this week or uh, retest on a new topic. And usually around those topics, then we'd develop some sort of scenario where you'd go out and actually practice it. Mm-hmm. So you start, I'd say most of my fellow NCOs will pick up this kind of knack for developing scenarios and small, maybe games is not the right word in that case, but simulations and exercises. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me. Uh, so when I switched from the uh, Army to the Air Force, anytime there was an opportunity where I could contribute to simulation or exercise design, I, I would get involved. And it so happened when I was stationed at Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota, I was uh, in charge of the section that developed the uh, simulations and exercises from an intelligence standpoint for the rest of the 28th bomb wing. And there I got a wealth of experience in designing uh, exercises. I'd say the biggest one I worked on when I was there was for not just the 28th bomb wing, but for Rapid City first responders as well, where we'd actually you know, develop the scenario, develop the injects, mm-hmm. and based on our injects, could actually have you'd have you know uh, police officers from Rapid City, South Dakota, respond to that. You'd have uh, maintenance personnel on base respond to an inject. So that's where you'd see the the actual live training of uh, personnel taking place. And I'd say you know I've been in for almost 25 years now, combined Army and Air Force, and that was the largest by far exercise I've ever worked on. And that was a good deal of fun. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, somehow I slipped through the cracks and got hired to teach at the Air Force Academy for the first time, 2006, <laughs> 2009. I like to say I'm you know, smart enough to teach there, but way too dumb to actually have gone there. <laughs> um, and it actually, we were teaching a, a class in American government on social capital. Mm-hmm. 
social capital basically being trust, uh, recipro reciprocity, uh, where it's seen that in Amer American culture that we have a, a habit for working together at the local level, and people learn to trust each other working face-to-face, -face, you know, going down to the PTA, working at the local church, uh, look at the Rotary Club or whatnot. Um, and as we're working on this lesson in social capital, based on uh, the Tocqueville's classic book, uh, Democracy in America, mm -hmm. uh, one of my students, and I'll say this, is, this was a formative moment in my life because it changed my research agenda, stood up in class and said, sir, does face-to-face -face trust work in video games as well? Like if you're playing EverQuest or World of Warcraft, do people get the same level of trust online? And I thought, huh, that's a good question. And like every good research program, it all started with that one question, and it's, that kind of set me up for the rest of my career. I did a research paper on studying how trust evolves in video game settings and um, massive multiplayer online games, I'll just say MMOs for short. Um, and I found in that line of work that, yes, you can develop trust in games, but it's more likely to occur when you can see someone's face mm -hmm. or see some type of representative representation of that person. Um, what I, I learned at the same time, like, you know, this is at the cusp between web 1.0 and web 2.0. If I'm going this crazy tangent here, don't mind me where interesting. going, going from largely, you know, text-based email-based forum-based interaction where people didn't necessarily know anything about the person on the other side of the computer screen, it would take a little while for them to, to trust that other person. But in a uh, any type of setting, we least I found in my research, where you can physically see someone else, and it could even be an abstract picture, mm -hmm. uh, people tend to, to trust faces. So the advent of, of these games where individuals could create avatars or representations of themselves, it was easier for individuals to start to building trust online. And you could see that now, fast forward to like, I almost, almost say we have like web 3.0 applications now, that something as simple as Facebook, the fact that you could see a real name and a real face inspires trust. Now going back to the games aspect, um, I guess I maintain a long-term interest in that and how people develop trust in these synthetic settings and it, it, it transitioned not just from video games, but also thinking, what about typical tabletop games? Like, think back to Gary Allen's fine classic sociological work on Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Shared Fantasy from 1982. Um, might be 1984, excuse me. Well, either way, it was early 80s, mm -hmm. where he actually embedded himself in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign and became one of the players. So it conserved. So from a sociological perspective, how these individuals interacted across the table. And from that, I've also grown interest now in seeing how people develop trust just at a regular tabletop paper, pen and paper gaming experience. Mm -hmm. You know, how you can take um, a group of strangers, you know, maybe you go to a con where you show up at the table, there's a dungeon master you don't know, there's... Um, they give you a bunch of first-level characters who sit down and play. By the end of the session, you could be lifelong friends. Or you keep playing over and over again at that same event. What? Or if you go... Oh, go ahead. I'm well, sorry. no, no, no. Well, I'm just, I'm just curious because if we're playing in a game, and a game isn't real, you know, I'm not really an elf. I mean, don't... I mean, I yeah. am, but... no. <laughs> you know, if we're yeah. playing a game and a game isn't real, why does mm. trust matter so much? Because uh, when you're in a game, um, Joseph, um, I'm sorry, I mispronounced his name, Joseph Hozinga, uh, in his book, Homo Ludens, who would call it the magic circle. When someone plays a game, any type of game, they, they cross to this liminal state where they realize, okay, I know I'm playing a game, but now I've crossed to this different world. Mm -hmm. You know, I could be playing someone else. You know, it could be abstract, like a game of chess, or, or it could be a game of sport, or it could be a, a, a um, role-playing game, but once you're inside that magic circle, it creates this whole new microcosm of a world where now you can um, play out 
don't know if playing out fantasies is the right word, but you can experiment with different identities. Mm-hmm. And as through that, by working with the identities of other people, it also builds trust. In video game parlance, they would call, also call the magic circle presence. Like you actually inject part of your identity is injected into the game. So it's a, a feeling of actually being there and being present, and now you're actually inside of it, interacting with real people. Mm-hmm. And by, again, seeing real people's faces, being able to interact you know, and see the, the, the facial tics of nonverbal communication, um, that helps build rapport a lot faster than, I'd say, many other, maybe any other communication medium. Well, if trust builds, I guess... I'm trying to understand the connection between then the research and your work, your work and mm. with how you make that part of your purpose and experience at the Air Force Academy. Is trust important for just sort of an esprit de corps or does, does it have larger, greater implications when it comes to the military? Um, I would say larger, greater implications. Um, when... When you're in a combat environment, you need to know the people next to you, like the back of your hand. But when you get to that, when you get to the other environment, that's not the time to actually get to know the people you work with. That needs to start before you even arrive. So, in a classroom setting, so I could say, on the one hand, I use games as a pedagogical tool to test ideas, but I can also use games as a means to have students cooperate with one each other one with one another and by learning to cooperate at a small group setting over time that reinforces itself and i hope by the time that they graduate and go into a wider air force they have a greater appreciation for um small group dynamics they've won at the table so most of the games that you have your students play are cooperative correct do you have them yes. ever play competitive games well, the, uh, that's true. The, the, the game I designed specifically to test classroom concepts, the narrative history of the Chocolate Wars, was cooperative in the sense that uh, teams, all the teams are divided into countries and they had to, in order to, to achieve some of their objectives, would have to work with other teams to do so. So it wasn't fully competitive. So- However, they did, I purposely did inject some goals that were at odds with each other to test how well how the students would overcome these issues and see how competitive they would actually get. Yeah, talk a little bit about uh, the Chocolate Wars because I think this is really interesting. Um, just reading the abstract that you had written about it, and I actually forwarded it to a friend of mine who teaches here at Washington University in St. Louis, who teaches yeah. political science, uses a lot of simulations. And I said, I told him that I was interviewing you, and I said, this is right up your alley. And he wrote back and said this was really great because he'd actually already downloaded it and was yeah, was going to uh, <laughs> was looking forward to using yeah. it. So hi Jeremy, hope you're listening. <laughs> um, so <laughs> talk a little bit about the chocolate wars because I think this is such a great melding of high level games, but also there's this really clever hook to keep students engaged in it. Right, right, okay. So yeah, to to reframe again. One, a good way to test to test trust in my students, and also to to uh, test their knowledge um, in the classroom environment. So this was designed specifically for uh, geopolitics 412, which is a senior level uh, international relations course. And so the full title of the article is "Narrative History of the Chocolate Wars: A Short and Tasty Bargaining Game," and was published in uh, Journal of Political Science Education. It hasn't. It's Published online, online right now, it has not been uh, assigned a print copy yet. I'm hoping that'll be the next uh, volume. But I, I knew when I was designing the game that I wanted something to be played maybe in one class, maybe two classes. I didn't have a lot of time to, uh, to spend with it. I wanted it to be abstract uh, because I wanted the students to kind of arrive at the the problem sets so they gave with no preconceived notions of reality, so they come up with novel solutions. And I wanted a, um, a tactile experience. So going back to the magic circle, the act of coming to a game and handling the dice, 
um, feeling the board, um, uh, touching the pieces is very sensual. And that helps uh, players actually come into the mindset that I'm ready to play, interact. So what if it was not just tactile, but something um, fun, hence the chocolate. Like they would actually be able to eat the chocolate pieces. Okay. It's one of those lessons where, you know, I, so I bring all this chocolate in and they start bargaining over these pieces with each piece representing a different type of military or, or economic capability in a country that they, you know, they would decide, well, do I hoard them? Do I eat them? Do I give them away? And they realize, wow, by the fact, by the act of eating them, I'm getting, cashing in my own resources and I'm losing my own um, capabilities. And then you start watching them now bargaining more intensely over the pieces, fighting over the pieces, uh, to the point where I actually had to tell one class, I said, I said, there's plenty of chalk to go around. All I ask is the pieces that are actually in play, please don't eat those. And right after I said that, one of my cadets ate a piece of Reese's Pieces right in front of me. <laughs> I said, Can I, what did I just say? And chocolate running down her face. I said, Sir, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. But they, if they, in the course feedback, they said that by being able to physically handle these pieces, mm-hmm. um, it was it hit all the senses. They could smell it, they could touch it, mm-hmm. they could hear it, they could see it. So they could actually look at another team and physically see how many resources this other team had compared to theirs. So it made a lot more dynamic mm-hmm. uh, experience for them involved. And I'd say it hit all my requirements for the class. Yeah. Well, and I think that's really interesting too, especially bringing in that... Um, yeah, like you said, that the multi-sensory approach to it, but also too, you know, nothing will convey that they are consuming a resource any clearer than eating it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, because it's one thing for me to turn in, you know, Stone Age, like turn in three sticks, get a little cardboard hut, put it over there. You know, okay, fine, done, it's gone. But when you're actually, it's you become part of the game itself, and you are at war with yourself as a player not just against the yeah. other players. And that has this whole other level when it comes to creating really interesting actors for players to play against. It's not just enough right. that I'm competing against others for chocolate and the types that I want, but I'm also competing against myself to do what's in my best interest and is my best interest a Reese's yes. Peanut Butter Cup or winning this game. Because <laughs> sometimes... <laughs> You're right before lunch. <laughs> the game may go by the wayside. Were there any unexpected sort of responses that students had that surprised you? Um, let me think. Oh yes, there. The the game did not specify trade agreements, but every class I had, without me seeing anything. Um, the students would look at all their their objectives. Like they might say, "I have to I have to um, make sure I have ten um, Reese's pieces and ten Hershey's bars by the end of this round." And they'd look at another team and they start talking about all their objectives and say, "Well, if you need this many pieces, I need this many pieces. Why don't we set up a permanent signed agreement that we're every round that when new pieces are injected, we just trade them back and forth." Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was a that when you talk about emergent gameplay, also emergent learning at the same point. I was very happy to see that just happen without me putting it the rules or expecting to see it. Yeah, that's really that's super cool. Um, so when so this was for you said a uh, senior level class at the Air Force Academy. Yeah. Yep. How do you think designing games for the military? differ than the regular classroom or is there anything special or particular about the mil- designing games in a military setting that's an advantage that you have in terms of your games that you work with? So um, on the one hand, I don't think there is a difference between military and non-military games, military games. If you think of it from an objective, objective perspective, all good games have some sort of objective they're trying to achieve. So if I write a game for any class, like I could go to a another university, go to their um, their class in international relations mm-hmm. and design a similar game for them, but we might have no military content in it whatsoever. Actually, that'd probably be hard to do with an international relations game. Uh, let me think of 
than maybe a political economy game. Mm -hmm. um, it would still be if the game does not have a good objective. Like I'm not trying to measure something, then it's going to fail. On the other hand, I must I have to be cognizant that there is a, a crucial difference from the military aspect in that um, fundamentally. I'm training my students to be officers in the Air Force, and that in a game setting, they are going to see themselves fighting over resources or fighting over objectives that in the real world will have could have lethal consequences. And that's actually one of the lessons I tried to uh, instill in my uh, bargaining game, in that I wanted to demonstrate that cooperation in some ways could achieve more than going to war. I made war in the game actually very costly. Mm -hmm. That if they decided, if two teams um, or more, more or multiple teams decided to fight each other, um, it was based on pure probability. 50%, you know, 50% enough, no weighted chance or anything. So if they decided to go to war, they could potentially lose everything they had. Uh, this ties into one of the lessons of, of military service that it's a, a, a profession of unlimited liability in that um, once the decision to fight uh, is made, you could lose everything. No matter how powerful you are, you could lose everything. Um, so if you can find uh, alternative, unique, or novel ways to overcome an objective uh, with as little force as possible, but still achieve your interests. And that's a, that's like a powerful lesson to, yeah. to send. Oh, yeah. I mean, because that's the one thing that I kept thinking about. We talked about this a little bit before we recorded is, you know, most games, unless they're, you know, pure abstract, are some type of simulation. And if you're even playing, you know, War Game, Napoleon's Triumph or something, you know, there's as detailed and as immersive as a game could be, there's still this element that, you know, you're removed from the situation. But when it's a simulation that could very closely replicate what they could be doing or will be doing with very human impact, how, and granted, you're, well, I'm trying to think, how does this impact the students themselves? But of course, you are working with an audience who is fully expecting this. But have you noticed, I mean, what, what is the impact on students when they become so fully engaged in these type of simulation experiences? I'd say almost to a person, they say that the course material becomes alive, becomes real. They say, that we've, they say up to this point in the course, we've done nothing but talk about it. And now we actually had to practice it. Mm -hmm. It's actually a lot harder than it looked. And I've seen this happen in... in uh, my geopolitics class, I did a zombie apocalypse simulation in International Relations 3 course for the science majors, same thing. They said all this theory became a lot more um, precise, a lot more visceral. We are actually trying to do it on a board. Um, the, to the point where some students would even say they changed their opinion for the better of the course material, because now they could see how it this is how it applies on a board, mm -hmm. applies in a simulated environment. I'm more likely now to see it. If I see it in a real environment, I'm more likely to recognize the concepts, the, the, the theories, the themes, and the realities. Do students ever have difficulty? And I'm, I'm guessing the answer is probably no, but I'm just curious, you know, because again, you're working with, um, you know, some of the most elite, you know, students in the country. But is there ever any difficulty or is there any problem about separation of the game from reality? Are there any who have have difficulty with it? Uh, I've only I wouldn't say so, but I had I have seen some pretty vociferous uh, arguments break out mm -hmm. to the point where I had to, I should step in as the referee and say uh, maybe sit down, relax, take a deep breath, and think about your position before you come to fisticuffs in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, but that goes back again to the presence or the magic circle where they've stepped in and now they've projected their entire selves and they're training into it. And now it becomes... Um, watching them compete at some times in these games is actually you know, quite um, eye-opening because they really put 
a lot of effort into it. But I wouldn't say that there's any uh, that I it, okay, let me take that back. In a classroom game environment, a board game environment, it's easier to step away. Mm -hmm. In a military exercise environment, that's where you get to experience the hunger, the thirst, um, the, uh, the heat, the cold, because you're actually out there practicing your job. And then you could see like tempers getting more afraid, people having to make decisions under duress. And that might be a little more difficult for individuals to overcome. But like I said before we recorded, better to learn that in this exercise environment than wait till you're actually in a um, live combat environment. So, so learn how to work through those. So what's the difference between the war games that you play in your classroom and one of these full military exercises? Because I was not fully thinking it when you said earlier, like when we before we started recording the hunger, the thirst. And again, I guess in my mind, I wasn't thinking it through, wasn't thinking in terms of an actual military <laughs> exercise. So now, right. which is silly, but, but now, you know, especially thinking about, you know, what can you accomplish with a war game in the classroom? And how do you take that and translate it? How do you, you know, game design, how do you apply that to designing these massive military exercises? Gotcha. Okay, so the advantage of a, just a classroom war game or a tabletop game uh, in, the, in a non-classroom environment, you might call it a tabletop exercise or a seminar exercise. It's really a, a exercise in just a mental decision-making. It's cheap. It's, you just get uh, folks in a room. Uh, you can do it with prototype pieces, you know, index cards, pennies, whatnot. It's really helping people work through cognitively the different problems. The full-blown military exercise, in contrast, that's where um, if I say a aircraft needs to take off and attack this initial target, an actual pilot goes to the aircraft and takes off mm. to an initial target. But all the maintainers are out there to maintain the aircraft. All the ammo handlers are there to load the ammo on the aircraft. Uh, all the, the uh, security forces are arrayed around the exercise area to protect it. It's actually where you're actually practicing your job that you would do in a real combat environment. Uh, now, a, a disadvantage of a full-up exercise is it could be really expensive. Mm -hmm. However, the big advantage is that's oftentimes the only way you can practice your actual military occupation minus going to war. That's the only time. I, I could, I, okay, I could lock people in a room for 24 hours playing a board war game which might be kind of amusing to see how they would make decisions under duress over time. But it's the exercise where you're actually now learning. You know, you've, you've learned your 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 um, Air Force specialty code. You've learned to be a security uh, personnel. You've learned to be an intelligence professional. You've learned to be a maintainer. But now you actually got to go do it. Mm -hmm. Often under, for very long hours under uh, credit conditions. And all these exercise injects are coming out and saying... You're notionally fighting against um, the people's independent group of ethnically orientation, ethnically oriented nation states, or pigeons, for short. You're fighting against pigeons, um, and you're, so now you're learning about that country, you know, learning about their politics, um, and it actually a good exercise. Everyone participating will actually starts. It's like you have this whole group now physically in this ma in this large magic circle, but they're practicing what they do. And that's you really can't get that level of detail in a just a board board game mm -hmm. or, or that level of effort. What did you think the first time you ran your first major military exercise like this? What what was your sort of takeaway from yourself as far as lessons you learned, things you'd want to do differently the next time? Oh, um, often, let's see. Biggest lesson is to not to, uh, oh, here comes a pun, pigeonhole your scenario. <laughs> um, you've often, you have to be, um, a designer will come with, with this great, you know, Scenarios saying we're going to fight against this country or we're going to ally with these countries and here's all our, our inject cards we're going to use uh, to test everyone. Well, 
now another some of the participants come up with a novel solution in the problems that completely guts a whole bunch of injects you just spent the last three weeks writing. So almost like being a, a game master, a dungeon master on a grand scale, you have to learn to be able to kind of change the scenario on the fly. Um, that's a very good skill to have. Mm-hmm. That's probably the biggest lesson learned. Do you ever have like someone who acts as um, is in your role, but for the opposition, kind of doing making their own decisions on the other side, or is it just tending to be from a U.S. position projecting outward? Oh no, we do have a. So you have this whole team. You'll have the the the. Uh, the um, I don't want to mess up the terms. The red cell, who behaves as the opposing force. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that could either be a team of just individuals making injects, you know, writing, you know, writing a scenario, or it could actually be a physical opposition force. We actually have um, airmen playing as the opposing force, you know, trying to break onto the base or to take equipment or, or sabotage operations. And then you have the white cell, which is uh, developing the, uh, I guess the, the U S perspective on the scenario. And then you have the, uh, the exercise evaluators who actually go out. They're like, they basically, I, I as a referee, I couldn't be everywhere at one time. So you'd have a team of individuals going out with clipboards and actually evaluating different teams or different uh, different areas of the base or different areas of uh, production and seeing how well are they responding to the inject, how well are they meeting their training objectives, how well they are performing uh, to their wartime uh, capabilities. Well, I just think it's really interesting going from where, I mean, granted for your, your players, um, your students, you know, for them, this is still a competitive exercise, but there's also this meta competitive one as well. I mean, is it, can the different cells win against each other in these sorts of environment, in these sorts of exercises and simulations? Um, let me see how, this might not be the answer you're looking for, but in my assessment, a good war game, a good exercise should not be uh, 100% winnable. Mm-hmm. Like, it sh- you should have the capacity to fail. So we, the, so if the, going back to uh, building that large simulation for the 20th bomb wing years ago, it was designed in such a way that they could actually start losing objectives. They could stop, they could not meet their performance metrics. They could actually end the exercise, mm-hmm. basically having failed the exercise. Um, to cite a famous example, uh, 2002, a Millennium Challenge was a large uh, war game. Uh, when I say large, it was like Joint Forces Command. It was representative of every service, you know, across the entire United States. And the basic gist of it was on day one of the exercise, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Van Riper, uh, Marine, uh, retired was playing the red cell and he won the day. He actually uh, defeated the United States. So the, the blue force, the, the good guy, the good guys lost. Well, that, uh, on the, the second day of the exercise, the, the exercise designer said, no, you know what? We, we can't do that. We can, we have to win. So we're going to change all the, we're going to set everything back to day one so that we haven't lost. And General Van Riper's position was, that's not how you learn. Mm-hmm. Day two should be, okay, you just lost yesterday. How are you going to overcome failure? Right. That's where the real learning begins. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's, I mean, this is so incredibly interesting to me because <laughs> I, I can like the easiest, simplest, lightest games, but I really like games that are so thematically and mechanically intertwined. You know, where what you do feels like what you should be doing in that particular position, in that particular role. And what you're talking about is that experience, but literally blown up life-size, greater than life-size. 
And so how I'm just, I'm so interested in just that yeah. interplay and dynamic between player and game and you as the designer and how all those pieces fit together. Mm. Is there any type of military strategy or type of scenario that you would like to see turned into some sort of major military exercise that you haven't been able to do or you can't do for whatever reason without and for for the record um the the office of public affairs cleared this conversation so if there's anything you can't say or not supposed to <laughs> yes. say by all means don't say it no. but um i'm just sort of curious as far as for me for you as a teacher where would you want to see this go is there anywhere else you'd want to explore um i there are t actually two two types of uh, strategy that I like to gamify. Um, the first one is um, visualization. And what I mean by that is um, a lot of uh, war games I've seen, or professional war games I've seen, they, they uh, start with a lot of perfect information. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, we've, we're, I would say as a force, we're used to having a, a very good information environment. Um, I would like to see, well, okay, let me back up. There's a, as an example, there's a, a video game that came up, a PC game that came out in 2016 called Duskers, in which your the player is searching um, wreckages in space, but it's not them physically searching this, these spaces. They're using sensors. Mm -hmm. So the game is played entirely through sensors. So you can only interact with what you can see. Uh, another game came to mind before this conversation. I tried to find the name of it and I could not find it. But the gist of it was, in this game, you can only you're inside of a cave, mm -hmm. and the only thing you can see is what you you take snaps of a radar to see your environments around your environment around you, um, and that's the only way you can interact with your environment. So go back to my professional game. It would be to uh, design a a scenario where some major form of U.S. capability was removed from the game. Like, day one, no satellites. Mm -hmm. Or no uh, surveillance aircraft, or something to that effect. So we'd have to start on day one, figure out an alternative solution to finding the information we need to, uh, to uh, solve the game. Mm -hmm. uh, make, it, make it very difficult um, immediately. Uh, to put it in perspective, I'm a fan of what I call blackout uh, gaming, mm -hmm. where if I'm doing a, a military simulation, where you know I see that everyone working on their computers, they have all their internet access, they have all the screens, I just come up and pull out a plug, and everything goes dark, and I say, okay, what are you going to do now? Hmm. You know, how are you how are you you don't have the access? Your sight's been taken away, or, or your ears have been taken away. How do you overcome this in, this uh, uh, empty information environment? The second game I'd like to see, um, Zach, I saw an example of it in a, there's a book. It's an older book, 1987, War Games by Tom Allen, where he did a study of professional gaming through the 70s and 80s. And he discussed a game that was played in the early 80s where it involved army planners planning how they were going to stop the Soviets from coming through the folder gap. And at the time, many senior level players were conditioned to um, think as if they had all their forces ready to go right there in Germany, uh, in France, Britain, you name it. But the, when they arrived, the, uh, the game designer and referee said, oh no, no, you don't have anything yet. You had to figure out how to get it there. And as they played through it, they realized they didn't, uh, little things like the gauge of a railroad, Okay, can we move trains from one end of Europe to the other? Um, what's the weather going to be like? Um, how many how many uh, vessels do we have available in the United States to move um, military equipment from the Atlantic coast to Europe? Mm -hmm. How many days is it going to take? It's it's a uh, logistics um, logistics training they hadn't uh, really thought about in a number of years, and it. As after I read that, it occurred to me, I said, you know what? Every scenario I've played in, 
it's always as if we've arrived with everything and we're ready to go. And I'd like to see more of, okay, what is it going to take to get us to where we need to go? How are we going to actually arrive and set up in the desert? That sort of thing. That's interesting. What sort of, are there any types of, for yourself as the teacher, for yourself as the designer, as the planner, are there any lessons that you've learned that are more part of like your personal approach to how you plan and conduct these lessons that you would be willing to share? Um, my biggest one is probably, I like being a referee far more than I like being a player. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of my skills that I've developed over time and the ability to be able, going back to lessons learned from the big game, adjust the narrows on the fly. So even something as playing, like playing the narrative history of the chocolate horse in class. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned to watch the class, listen to their conversations they're having, um, write down the types of agreements they're making, and then try to adjust the scenario accordingly. You know, make it, if I think it, maybe a, a group of students is uh, suffering unnecessarily, even though you might suffer unnecessarily in combat, I might ease up a little bit so they get some more effective learning out of a task. Mm-hmm. Or if I think one team is having, um, uh, getting off scot-free and just kind of sitting back watching the resources accumulate, I might drop an inject, you know, a white card on them to, uh, to uh, you know, maybe, like say mice have gotten to your chocolate, mm-hmm. you know, and now you have to take half the pieces off. So I guess this is all a fancy way of saying, um, be good at listening and receiving and be able to react uh, to the game. Right. Yeah. So I did a simulation at a conference called Nasaga, the North American Simulation and Gaming Association. And it's one based on this espionage simulation that we've done with our students. I, um, in our seventh grade gifted kids, they do a semester of tabletop game design with me. And our other gifted teacher, she does a semester of an, of an espionage class. They learn all about code breaking, um, different types of cryptology, different types of methods of concealing information. At the end, we put together a simulation for espionage um, that you know is fun. I mean, granted, we have to talk a lot about ethics and why you shouldn't log on to your friend's computer, you know, that sort of thing. This is for seventh graders, not for uh, who you work with. Um, but And so I ran this um, at Nisaga, and it was a really great learning experience because one of the big questions, because I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know how many people I would have. I didn't know what the environment was going to be. So to have this type of big scenario, especially with espionage, when it comes to carefully controlling information, how do you just, how do you spread the information? Um, and what extent can we use the facility to, you know, hide and transfer messages? Plus I only had two hours, you know, all those sorts of different questions. And I did the best that I could given the knowledge about what I was getting into, but especially during and afterwards, you know, certainly there were lessons learned. And so it's always, you know, a great thing when you can have those types of experiences, but the biggest stumbling block that I think I did leading up to this was wanting to make wanting to have too much control, wanting to have too finite of outcomes because it was really, really hard to conceptualize how I would have multiple out- outcomes as far as this goes. You know, multiple ways in which players could win. And so easily, like you said, there could be certainly huge swaths of prepared elements that would never make it you know, to the table or to the experience. But how do you approach when you're wanting to have those outcomes and those objectives that you're wanting for players and for, we'll just say players. Um, how do you design and plan for that? Cause I think that's one of the hardest things for a lot of teachers. When you go into any type of simulation design, there's everything that you want, everything that works on paper, but then there's the reality when you interject the human yeah. element and then how you adapt on the fly. Um, the, I'd say the biggest one is, and this is probably my big, you know, Bible thumping, foot stomping uh, rule of, of game design is it all starts with a good objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, just a single 
measurable objective you're trying to achieve in that single class or multiple classes or a large exercise. Even the largest exercises I work with typically have just one overall objective, maybe two. Uh, from that, you might you could get a little more fine grained, but as long as you you go into the game, just the design itself, knowing what is it, why do I, why am I even using a game in the first place? What is it? What is the, the fundamental, um, the fundamental lesson I want my students to uh, draw from this? Uh, so back to the, the narrative history of chocolate wars. The, the real objective was test student knowledge of international relations concepts um, in two schools, realism and liberalism. And those are those two concepts. I mean, I could probably I could spend an entire semester, you know, with a one huge game just testing those along. But I said, you know what? That gives me enough uh, wiggle room that in a, even a single class, I could say, okay, they might not have hit um, every aspect of realism in this one class. And I wouldn't expect them to. But the odds are they're going to hit the high points. Like they'll understand what power is. Liberalism, they'll understand what cooperation is. Um, so if I want to, I want that written on my great, my tombstone to say it all starts with a good objective. Right, right. Yeah. I appreciate that, and I think it uh, uh, can be a bit of a control freak, you know. So wanting, yeah. you know the. You know, having the ability and confidence, I think, just comes with time and more practice, too. I mean, like I said, it was a great learning environment. And one of the questions when we were doing the, the processing afterwards was about what are the objectives? What are you trying to do? And, you, and I think that's where, for me, it was a little bit muddy. And I was glad to have that sort of, like, challenge posed. And it really made me think about, because for us, we have a lot more time. And so there's different types of objectives for my students as far as everything from sort of like the social side from like teamwork and communication and all that, but also to the technical side of the espionage simulation. And so um, it was really, really a hard experience. So I can just say, you know, from what you're talking about, all the work that you're doing, I mean, a very small <laughs> experience in this, but a lot of appreciation for what you do and the thoughtfulness in how you put together what you do. So um, I want to I want to conclude with one uh, last bit, and this is um, your call sign is pigeon, and I wasn't just uh, calling yes. you pigeon earlier to be sweet or something. So explain why your call sign is pigeon, because I think this is really great. Ah uh, yes, so yes, it's very very popular in the Air Force for uh, individuals to get nicknames mm -hmm. or call signs. Um, and some people get nicknames for rather grievous reasons, which I probably shouldn't go into here on this program. So I say I lucked out. I have, uh, I've had, I've kept pigeons for over 20 years and actually I have one bird Heathcliff. I've had him for 22 years. He could be able, he could be up to 34 years old. I don't know exactly how old he is. He's an old bird. Well, I had a, a, a barbecue at my house and the whole unit was over. And one of the youngest, uh, airmen looked, at my birds and looked at me and looked at my birds and looked at me and said, man, Fielder's like a big old pigeon himself. Ah, and there you go. <laughs> and everyone just started calling me pigeon and it stuck. Um, I'd say my proudest, my proudest nickname moments way back in 2002 when the chief of staff of the air force came to visit everyone. And I was uh, deployed to Saudi Arabia at the time. And he was going down the line, and I said, this is Sergeant Sutton-Such, and this is Captain Sutton-Such, and this is Airman Sutton-Such, and this, they got to me, this is the big pigeon. <laughs> I said, oh, that's quite a name you have there, Lieutenant. I said, yes, sir. So, <laughs> yeah, the name is stuck, and I wear it proudly. Oh, that's great. That's great. My <laughs> sister's uh, ex-husband, when um, they were married, he was at uh, officer candidate school down in Pensacola for the Navy, and it's Navy, right? Okay, yep, yep. So <laughs> I wasn't in the military, um, yeah. but uh, his was Dagwood because he would make these crazy big sandwiches like Dagwood bumps yeah. in the cartoons of like eight pieces of yep. bread on either side and 
giant stacks of everything in between. So his was Dagwood. So that's, that's kind of a cute one too. Um, well, thank you so, so much for spending your time. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways probably just scratch the surface of everything, but it's so interesting to me what you do and how you do it in terms of how you use these games to help prepare, you know, our future military leaders for what we do. And in an, complex ever-changing world i think we're all in probably agreement about the benefits of games and what games can do you know at the classroom level but to see this at the you know the, honestly like not to be grandiose here but the global level i mean it's really incredible what you're doing that's a lot of fun yeah i mean that's the thing it's like when you think about like you know, I was telling other teachers that I worked with about that I was going to interview you. I'm like, and he does this, and he does this, and he gets to do this, and this. And they're like, that's really cool. I'm like, I know. So, well, anyway, well, thank you so much uh, for your time and speaking with us today. How is there? Is it possible for people to contact you? Um, is there an avenue by which they can contact you if they're interested in knowing more and speaking with you more about what you do? Well, there is. Um, so. Okay, Twitter's a little awkward. It's J underscore D underscore Fielder. But if you look up Pigeon on the search terms, I guarantee you're going to find me. Uh, my Gmail, uh, james.fielder.phd at gmail.com. Or uh, my website, uh, mostly just a CD placeholder, so don't get too excited about content. It's uh, www.jdfielder.com. Okay, I can contact you there. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show. This was so interesting. And I really, really appreciate your time with us today. Oh, no worries. Thank You're you. Welcome. Well, this has been Kathleen Mercury. You can find me and all my game design teaching resources at KathleenMercury.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Mercury with seven M's. And until next time, this is Games in Schools and Libraries. Have fun. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com, where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. Games in Schools and Libraries podcast is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. You can come and play games with me at the Waccamonic Ranch Library in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in Polly's Island. 